You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 63rd episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you liked today's episode, be sure to leave me a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at the Relationship Center on Facebook or Instagram. In today's episode, I will discuss a concept I believe in and use with my clients. I call it post-traumatic glow. The DSM-5 contains a diagnosis that is often thrown around by lay people to pay reference to being upset about something that has happened to you, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. This colloquial use is disturbing to me because as a counselor who has worked with many clients diagnosed with PTSD, it is quite serious and no disorder from my point of view. Let me begin with the latter and then address the former. PTSD is not a combination of letters that typically comes from my mouth. I believe labeling someone who has been through trauma with a disorder is inhumane and re-traumatizing. Any person who has experienced trauma, by definition, a physical trauma occurs as a result of an outside force against your body, car accident, fall, gunshot, wound, etc., Emotional or psychiatric trauma can result from physical trauma or as the consequence of witnessing or experiencing a severely distressing event should experience certain stress around that. It is a normal response to an extraordinary event. Normal response, not a disordered response. Every time I hear someone use the acronym or the name post-traumatic stress disorder, I tend to recall there is nothing disordered about it unless you talk about the shame someone feels from the actual trauma itself or by being labeled disordered afterwards. When I talk about that condition, I used to call it simply post-traumatic stress or PTS. And I tell clients, if they didn't experience post-traumatic stress after what they'd been through, I'd be worried about them. It's perfectly normal. It can be considered a disorder, however, because it causes disruption in a person's life. However, instead of labeling it a disorder, I help people understand what is happening so they can then develop skills to manage it so it's less disruptive until they learn to neutralize the negative effects over time. What actually is the DSM-5 definition of post-traumatic stress? It lists eight criteria that are, one, the person must have been exposed to death, threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury, or actual or threatened sexual violence in the following ways, through direct exposure, by witnessing the trauma, learning that a relative or close friend was exposed to a trauma, and even indirect exposure to adversive details of a trauma, usually in the course of professional duties, like first responders, medics, military service members, sometimes even therapists. Two, then they have to experience at least one of the following intrusive symptoms associated with the traumatic event. They have to have two of these. Unwanted upsetting memories, nightmares, flashbacks, emotional distress after exposure to traumatic reminders, and physical reactivity after exposure to traumatic reminders. 
Do you think you might have two or more of those symptoms if you've been through the trauma that's described? Pretty sure I would. Three, then there has to be at least one of the following. There needs to be avoidance of trauma-related stimuli after the trauma in the following ways. Either trauma-related thoughts or feelings or trauma-related external reminders. The fourth criteria, negative alterations in cognitions and mood. Two are required. So the person has to have negative thoughts or feelings that began or worsened after the trauma in the following ways. Inability to recall key features of the trauma. Overly negative thoughts and assumptions about oneself or the world. Exaggerated blame of self or others for causing the trauma. Negative affect. Decreased interest in activities. Feeling isolated. Difficulty experiencing positive affect. Number five. Alterations in arousal and reactivity. So trauma-related arousal and reactivity that began or worsened after the trauma in the following ways. The person is experiencing irritability or aggression, risky or destructive behavior, hypervigilance, heightened startle reaction, difficulty concentrating, difficulty sleeping. And number six is the symptoms must last for more than a month. So if you have a trauma and you get over it in less than a month, you wouldn't get this diagnosis. The seventh criteria is distress or functional impairment in social and occupational areas that must be significant. And eighth is the symptoms must not be due to medication, substance use or abuse or other illnesses. Because I don't have a DSM-5 on my shelf, this information was taken from the article DSM Criteria for PTSD Diagnosis at the website www.brainline.org if you'd like to read more about it. Now let's look at normalizing all of that so people who are suffering don't have to add on top of the trauma the shame that this has permanently somehow broken them so they're irreparably damaged. They are not broken and they are having a normal response to an extraordinary life event. So number one, remember the trauma they had to be exposed to? Death, threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury, or actual or threatened sexual violence in the following ways. Through direct exposure, witnessing the trauma, learning that a relative or close friend was exposed to a trauma, or indirect exposure to adversive details of the trauma, usually in the course of professional duties like first responders, medics, military service members, or therapists. If you or any other normal human being were exposed to these described events, of course they're going to experience stress afterward. I don't even think stress is a strong enough word for what is experienced. A person who has gone through this has been stripped of any power and efficacy they once possessed in that experience. That's incredibly traumatic. To realize there was nothing you could have done to stop it or save the other person. Then, as a response to having zero power and control, they try to take their power back by going over and over the event to try to find the place where they could have done something different that would have resulted in a different outcome. 
Only there isn't a moment like that. They were truly powerless. It doesn't stop them from searching for the answer over and over again, though. Makes sense, doesn't it? Then the second thing, they then experience at least one of the following intrusive symptoms associated with the traumatic event. Unwanted upsetting memories. Could you imagine having wanted memories of the trauma? It's ridiculous. It's also known that our memories are clearest and easiest to remember when they're associated with strong emotions. Do you imagine someone going through or witnessing a trauma might be experiencing some strong emotions? Of course, the memory of that trauma is going to be solidified in their memory, much the same way a strong memory of love or excitement is. They are just different ends of the emotional spectrum. Nightmares. Nightmares are one way the brain attempts to deal with material it struggles to make sense of. I also believe nightmares are a way for a person to try to find that power and control they lost during the incident, repeating what happened, looking for a different outcome. Flashbacks. Triggers of a sensory nature, sight, sound, smell, touch, taste, can instantly throw a person right back into the trauma as if it's happening in real time. This is also understandable. During trauma, not only are emotions heightened, but when the body is being pumped up with cortisol and adrenaline, the body's senses and reflexes are heightened. This is part of what gets imprinted on the brain as part of the trauma. When a person experiences a similar sensation to what was present during the trauma, it's normal to be transported back there with an intense memory experience that feels real in real time. The person needs to learn self-soothing skills to remind themselves they are safe in the moment. What they are experiencing is only a memory and they can develop some touch tones that will help ground them in the present. Emotional distress after exposure to traumatic events. This symptom is a no-brainer to me. When someone's experienced a stressor of the nature described, is it any wonder that reminders of that experience would create emotional distress? You'd have to have ice in your veins not to experience emotional distress when reminded of the trauma. Physical reactivity after exposure to traumatic reminders. This exposure to traumatic reminders would send the brain right back to that flight, fight, or freeze mode. Each of those motions has accompanying physical reactivity, making this so-called symptom almost predictable. And then there must be at least one of the following, remember? Avoidance of trauma-related stimuli after the trauma in the following ways, either avoiding trauma-related thoughts or feelings or avoiding trauma-related external reminders. This one is almost comical. You mean to tell me the traumatized person doesn't want to talk about or be reminded of the worst event of their life? Imagine that. Surely they must have a disorder if this is true. The next one, negative alterations in cognition and mood. Two are required. So that means they have to have two of these symptoms, either the inability to recall key features of the trauma. This is the brain protecting you from the trauma, and it's actually a good thing. This is why people suffering trauma, head injury, often have amnesia. Sometimes the brain is saying, you don't need to remember this. It's too painful. You won't be able to process and make sense of it. 
Another one, overly negative thoughts and assumptions about oneself or the world. This is something that can be worked on in therapy. In an attempt to gain power over the situation, victims try to find ways they could have prevented the trauma from occurring. This is bad in the sense that it causes self-blame, but it's helpful in that if they can find that thing that would have changed it, they can believe they have mastery over future events. Otherwise, they feel like the perpetual victim of the actual trauma and any future traumas that might be perpetrated later. Exaggerated blame of self or others for causing the trauma. Same thing I just said about overly negative thoughts and assumptions about oneself or the world. Negative affect. This means the person is experiencing negative painful emotions such as anger, depression, and or anxiety. Again, this is something that's predictable when one experiences trauma. Why make this about a disorder? Another one, decreased interest in activities. Imagine this, normal everyday things that used to bring the person joy stop being enjoyable. Can you imagine that being any other way? A person who's been through trauma is not feeling safe. How could they continue the same level of interest in activities? Feeling isolated. Of course this happens. People who've experienced trauma do feel isolated because of shame, self-blame, and the sense that no one could possibly understand what they've been through. There is also the pity they see reflected in everyone's eyes when they look at them, and that is so hard to see. So it's better just to be alone. Another possible symptom, difficulty experiencing positive affect. Again, I think this is ridiculous to expect that a trauma survivor would be experiencing positive emotions after a trauma, even a month after the trauma. This is an unrealistic expectation. Can it happen? Of course, it's possible. But as a counselor, I would be concerned with someone who's able to conjure up genuine positive affect until they've done some trauma work. Alterations in arousal and reactivity. Isn't it difficult to imagine a trauma survivor not experiencing changes in arousal level and reactivity? They're in survival mode, working hard to prevent a future occurrence. It would be natural to jump at the sight of their own shadow. Then trauma-related arousal and reactivity that began or worsened after the trauma in the following ways. So they might be irritable or aggressive. Anyone who understands the stages of grief knows that anger is a stage people typically travel through. In post-trauma, the person needs to work through the loss of their personal security that most of us take for granted. Risky or destructive behavior. Again, this is totally explainable when you realize the headspace victims can be in. If they're blaming themselves for what happened and believe they have been permanently altered or changed, broken forever by this, then a sort of self-hatred can ensue, which would lead to risky and destructive behaviors. Hypervigilance. Of course this is true. It's normal to be hypervigilant to prevent future attacks. Heightened startle reactions. Same reason. The person's living in constant fear. Difficulty concentrating. Imagine this. The trauma victim has difficulty concentrating. This is also explained by constant stress hormones of adrenaline and cortisol coursing through the person's body long after the immediate threat is gone. 
difficulty sleeping? I don't know about you, but if every time I closed my eyes, I saw my attacker, I would have trouble sleeping too. Add to that the likelihood that when I do finally sleep due to exhaustion, I have nightmares of the trauma, so I don't want to sleep either. Another criteria is that symptoms must last for at least a month. This is good. The DSM provides you with the full 30 days to get over your trauma and all its residual effects before labeling you with a disorder. Ridiculous. Depending on the level of trauma, it is unrealistic to expect that a person will be symptom-free and back to pre-trauma normal in one month. And then distress or functional impairment in social and occupational areas must be significant. It's somewhat comforting to know that you aren't supposed to have a PTS diagnosis unless your symptoms have created difficulty for you to function socially and at work. How could you when everyone looks like a possible perpetrator and you don't trust your own ability to keep yourself safe? How could you not have functional problems socially and at work? And the symptoms must not be due to medication, substance use, or other illness. This is a rule out. If you're taking medication or medicating yourself with substances or you have a coexisting illness, you should not receive a PTSD diagnosis. Instead of all that, there are some trauma treatments such as EMDR or EFT that work on the body's physiology to disconnect the trauma from the symptoms that can be quite amazing. The rest of the work has to do with counseling or coaching that can help the survivor understand that they can change their thinking to learn to enjoy life again. Mental freedom helps with that. The last step of the mental freedom process is finding the glow. I ask people to choose something in their life that was very painful and to give it a number on the pain scale from zero to 100, with zero being no pain and 100 being excruciating. Then I teach them that whatever their number is, let's say it's 78, I tell them there's 78 positivity associated with that same event. This is a very difficult concept to grasp when the event was particularly traumatic. Events in our lives are perfectly balanced, just like the protons and electrons of the elements of the periodic table. The problem is that for our survival from prehistoric times, our brains are hardwired for negativity. We're programmed for our own good to notice the bad, the painful, the out of place, so we can predict danger and get ourselves to safety. This tendency is perfect when we're in a life-threatening situation. We need to notice the negative. However, once we're in relative safety, we can begin the hard work of first recognizing the positive is there and then going on a mission to find it. I believe this is the work of trauma recovery. Of course, it must be time when the victim is ready to become a survivor. In the beginning, there needs to be a lot of care taken to validate and empathize with the victim, giving them hope that they are not permanently broken and can most definitely thrive after this experience when they are ready. Once the helping professional recognizes it could be time to explore this, they would share the concept of perfect balance and ask the person if they can think of any gifts, lessons, opportunities, and wisdom that came out of the trauma. One thing that's always there is the opportunity to help others going through similar experiences. Just because the opportunity exists, though, doesn't mean the person needs to take advantage of it. 
However, that doesn't change its existence. One thing I know the survivors of trauma understand better than anyone is that safety is an illusion. This realization can terrify you and cause you never to leave your home and to turn that home into a fortress. On the other hand, realizing the illusion of safety, it could empower the person to develop themselves to be as capable as anyone at self-defense. Trauma experiences heighten people's awareness and empathy for others experiencing similar things. Trauma has caused people to break free from debilitating relationships and develop strength and resilience they didn't know they had. There's a great opportunity for post-traumatic glow when you know it's there and you're ready to look for it. You likely won't find the precise balancing amount at once. It's a journey. I think of this as the journey of coming back from the dark side of the trauma. You take a journey one step at a time. As you collect and recognize gifts, lessons, opportunities, and wisdom the trauma brought you, you start to not be held hostage by the overwhelming pain of it. You can feel the pain and turn the trauma over to the glow side and experience that simultaneously. As you make this a practice and a habit, you'll notice the hold the trauma has over you and your life lessens and you get back in the driver's seat of your life's journey. I want to leave you with a quote, the origin of which I do not know, but it was shared with me by my colleague and friend, Scott D'Alterio. He says his mantra is, nothing happens to me, everything happens for me. Once you can get to that place and be willing to focus on the glow instead of the pain, you will be free. If you're interested in understanding post-traumatic glow better, either as a counselor or a person or loved one living with the post-traumatic experience, I'll leave a link in the show description for you to contact me for a complimentary 20-minute consultation. I hope you'll join me next week when I'll be discussing what positive mental health looks like. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.